Hi, this is Steve Bryant, and I want to welcome you to episode 16 of the RelativityChallenge.com podcast. Today, what I'd like to do is walk you through a two-part presentation that I gave at the University of New Mexico in April of this year for the AAAS NPA conference. In part one, we're going to look at bidirectional wavelength and moving systems. What this really means, and as you'll see as the presentation unfolds, is that we're going to look at how the equations are derived and how they're derived from lines that move in multiple directions. Then in part two, which will be a subsequent podcast, um, we're going to have a presentation on a comparison of the moving systems models with one another. So we're going to look at Einstein's model, uh, my model, what Michelson-Morley did, what Lorenz did, see what assumptions they make that are similar to one another and see what assumptions they make that are different from one another. So at the end of that presentation, we will have built basically a one-page slide that allows us to graphically see the relationship of the models to one another. So let's look at our agenda today. We're going to look at a couple of different things. Uh, for, for this presentation, we're going to look at the conceptual foundation. But why are we going to do this at all? And that is because we have an alternative, the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems. And whether it's this as an alternative or any other model that someone might pr propose, that alternative has to have a couple of things true about it. Number one, it has to be rational. And number two, it has to produce equal or better mathematical results. If it doesn't do the latter, there's no reason to move to it. Even if there is something that we believe is wrong with Einstein's model, if it's the best game in town, we still have to continue to use it. So it should be a slightly better game. Uh, and number th the first part, of course, is that it should be rational. It should make sense on some conceptual level. So the last two parts, the relationship to other theories, uh, we'll talk about in the next presentation. And in experimental evidence and support, we'll touch on some of that here. Although for those of you who have already seen the Michelson and Morley presentation that uh, is on the podcast and another presentation that I gave at this year's conference, you'll see some uh, pretty compelling experimental evidence in that presentation. So in order to get started, there's a key equation. It's a very simple equation, but it's fundamental to our understanding of moving systems. And that is velocity times time. And that gives us some sort of answer. And we can see that there's multiple ways that you can write that particular equation. And I've shown three different equations uh, there. But the question really is, what is the answer? Is the answer a length or a point? Or is it both a length and a point? And the answer to that question is, it depends. And this, trying to answer that particular question, is what we're going to try to do in today's presentation. But understanding the answer to that question has incredible in implication on our understanding of moving systems, whether it's my model or Einstein's model or some other proposed model. Now, for those of you who watch the four-part series that I've prepared on coordinate systems, you know that, that when I talk about a, an incomplete or complete coordinate system, there's really three components. You have a stationary or a reference system, you have a moving system, and you have some sort of object that is moving with respect, uh, that, that is oscillating with respect to points on that moving system. So when you have uh, those three things, that makes up either an incomplete or a complete coordinate system. A standalone coordinate system, however, is just something that you can measure. 
So one of the first things we have to do is just get grounded in some of the key concepts. And these concepts were laid out by Lorenz in 1895. And we can look at it here where he begins by saying the time required by a ray of light to travel from a point A to a point B and back to A must vary when those two points together undergo displacement without carrying the ether with them. So we have to look at a few key words here. It must vary and the ether is not carried with them. Now, for those of you who've been following the website and the podcast, you'll recognize this as a description of an incomplete coordinate system. However, we can take a little bit of editorial license and change a few words and say that it does not vary and the ether is carried. And in that case, you'll recognize that as our definition of a complete coordinate system. So there, there is a assumption set that will change and we'll talk about. And again, for those of you who've watched the four-part video series that I've prepared on moving systems, you'll understand kind of the, the key themes and the key differences between a complete and an incomplete coordinate system. And we'll talk about those uh, throughout the course of the podcast series. But today, we're really going to be more focused on the behaviors and the mathematics of an incomplete coordinate system. Now, to make our examples a little easier for people to grab onto and grasp, we're going to take some concepts that might be hard to get our head around, ray of light and ether, to something that's a little bit easier for us to digest. So instead of ray of light and ether, we are going to say a person and the ground. This is just a simple contextual change that makes it easier for us to grasp the examples that we're going to walk through together. So now we're going to look at a demonstration that's going to help us create the foundational equations inherent in each of the moving systems models. So this is very interesting. Remember, the foundational equations are inherent in each of the moving systems model. So whether you look at the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems, you look at Lorenz, you look at Einstein, or you look at what Michelson and Morley did, they all come from the same foundational equations. And this is very interesting. I think it's exciting. And the nice thing about it is it makes it easier to understand how all of the models are related to one another and how they're different. So in order for this to really make sense, I'm going to ask people to go back to a time before Einstein. Why? Because we can't get hung up on, on people's beliefs or perceptions of how something should behave in a post-relativistic world. Rather, we have to go back before relativity and then build forward so that we can conclude how did relativity come into existence and what does it mean? How did Michelson and Morley come up with their equations and why did they do that? Why did Lorenz come up with his equations? How did I, in my example, come up with my model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems? What are some of the key assumptions that were made in doing that? Ideally, what we're, when we do the demonstration, we're just going to talk about concepts that everyone should get, things that you already know about, and I hope that it makes sense. So with that said, let's take a look at the demonstration. Now, for our demonstration, I'd like to walk us through a couple of things. The key thing that I'd like you to take away from the demonstration is the concept of length and time. So we're going to ask some questions about how long does something take? or how far did they have to do 
that they have to walk. So when we look at moving systems, those are two key questions we're going to look at. Now you recall uh, an incomplete moving system has three components that make it up. You have a reference system or stationary system. That's going to be our background. You have a moving system. Think of this box as a bus, our moving system. And you have some sort of object that's going to oscillate. In this case, we have a man that we're going to put in motion along the y-axis and a cat that we'll put in motion along the x-axis. Now again, as Lorenz mentioned, you have a point A and a point B that's moving with respect to the moving system. Those are represented by the uh, balls. So there's a ball under the cat. There's a ball here. And we would also have a point C so that we can get that same type of motion along the y-axis. Now, one point of confusion that I hope that we'll be clearing up as we go through our conversation today is around a length and a point. So right now, if they are at the origin, this ball is at position x prime. That is slightly confusing because that is its point. It is at x prime, just like this ball is at location y along that axis. However, because we are at the origin, this is also the length that these folks have to travel. And our key thing that we're going to look at as we derive the equations, again, we're going to ask how far do they now have to walk and how long does it now take them to walk there? So before we do that, let's put them in motion and um, go ahead and, and see what it looks like when they're stationary. So they go out, they hit the ball, and then they come back again, each one performing one oscillation. And you'll see the counters at the top. It took them 162 in order to do that. We'll do it once more so that you can see it in action. They go out, they hit the uh, their respective balls, and come back and perform one oscillation and return at the same time. Is that going to happen when we are in motion, when we put the, the um, coordinate system in motion? Let's find out. Let's see what happens in that case. Uh, again, remember, their movement is governed by the stationary reference system, but they're oscillating back and forth between points on the moving system. So we now have the path that the man had to take. He forms this nice little triangle shape. The key thing is we can answer the question, how long is his total journey? But before, we only cared about it in one direction. We, we asked how long to get here. I would say another way of interpreting that when you look at oscillations is how far is halfway? Let's just answer that question. So halfway takes us here and we can answer that question as to how far and how long did it take him to get there and we can produce equations that will answer that question. Now the cat on the other hand, let me see if I can make this a little easier, the cat went all the way out the length of the long line and then returned the length of the short line couple of things we'll talk about here that's very important but halfway for him is going to be somewhere in about here so when he's gotten to this point he's about halfway done with his walk he continues he goes out and then he comes back and that's his total distance now a couple of things to note when you do the math and you have a long line and a short line if I said where is halfway I could say here if I asked you okay so where is the cat if he's gone twice that distance you have to be careful you can't say that he's way out here where twice the distance would be actually a little bit off the screen um, because remember in order for this math to work the short line is going in the other direction so he ends up here not way out uh, off the screen off the right somewhere that's a very key concept with bidirectional movement and we'll see how bidirectional movement comes into play in each of the derivations for moving systems
So the key thing I wanted to, you to take away from, from this uh, particular demonstration is that we now have a line that will answer the question of half the distance along the y-axis or half the time, and we can also compute the same thing for the x-axis. Now that we've gone through our demonstration, what I'd like to do is just summarize some of the key points. So when we talk about points and lengths, there's something that's, I think, very important for us. And that is, if you're talking about a point, there are a couple of conditions that you have to, to keep in mind. Number one, points are going to start at the origin and they're going to be unidirectional. You're not going to have bidirectional movement. Lengths can be unidirectional or bidirectional. And of course, they don't always have to start at the origin. A length and a point is going to be unidirectional because that's a constraint from a point and it's going to start at the origin. So we can have a, from our, our moving system equation on um, the early slide, it can be a point or it can be a length or it can be both. However, once you get something that happens to be bidirectional, then it is always a length. It cannot be a point if you have something that is bidirectional. And that's a key point that you need to take away from our conversation today. So let's look at building the equations of a moving system. So basically we have, in this case, a bus. And the, we have the length of the, the back of the bus is y, the length of the to the front of the bus is x prime. Now you can also call those points. So along the x-axis, that endpoint is y, and along the y-axis, the endpoint is x prime. This can be a point of confusion because when we say just the number x prime or just the number y, are we talking about a length or a point or both? It's very important to know which one you're talking about. In our case today, we're going to be talking about a length. So once we put this moving system in motion, we can see that there's an equation that tells us how far that person on the outside took, uh, or how much time in this case it took to get to the other end of the bus. Meanwhile, the first person is moving towards the front of the bus, hasn't reached it quite yet. First person returns uh, and comes back, so they've now completed one oscillation. And you can see that if we added both of those equations together, we have the equation for one total oscillation. Or we can just take one of those equations, or the sum and divide by two, depending on how you want to view it, and that will tell us how long half that journey was. So we continue to go forward. Eventually, the person who's traveling along the x-axis uh, hits the front of the bus, and there is an equation that tells us how long it took to reach the front of the bus. Now, a key thing here, and I invite you to go back and look at the the episode on incomplete coordinate systems. In order for this to happen, the bus must be going slower than our person or the object can travel. This is, the, this is a key constraint that we have for travel in this direction. And then coming back in the other direction, we have the equation for the short line. Now I've also put another equation on there because I think it's an important one that sometimes gets lost when people review Einstein's derivation. And that is, if we were at x prime and we were traveling at a velocity v for some amount of time, call it t, we can find out where we are now. So let's call that location x. And so we can simply say x equals where we were, x prime, 
plus our velocity times time plus vt. So it gives us an equation to find out where we are. Now the important thing about this equation is it also tells us something else we can do. Let's say I told you where you are right now and I told you how long you've been traveling there and at what velocity, I can say, where were you when you started? And simply, you would say x prime equals x minus vt. That gives us two things, not only the point of the front of the bus, but because the back of the bus was at the origin, it also tells us the length of the bus. This is, also, this is I have to admit, one of the confusing points, because x prime it's easy to confuse for a point if you just view it on mathematical terms, but how it's used in the derivation, if you look at it on the short line and the long line, it is not construed as a point for that math to make sense. It's construed as a length, and we have to keep that in mind. So here's a few summary points to, to take away. Now, one of the changes I'm going to make here, uh, I've changed what was W, which is the velocity of our moving object. Remember, the bus is moving at velocity V. And I've changed our velocity of the moving object to C. And I'm doing this so that now we can true it up in terms of comparing it with Einstein and Lorenz. In my model, W can take on a number of different values. When you're talking about the speed of light through the vacuum of space, then W becomes C, or 300 million meters per second. If you're talking about the speed of sound at sea level, then that has a certain speed, around 700 miles per hour, that, and, and W would get replaced by that value. So in my model, you have a little bit more var variability on what W means, but so that we can do an apples-to-apples -apples comparison, we're going to set it to C and talk about electromagnetic force and that would be through a vacuum at 300 million meters per second. So as we talked about both on when you have a short line and a long line, you have bidirectional movement. And I, I hope that people caught that from the demonstration. But how do you go about spotting it in a derivation? Well, sometimes people will just say it's bidirectional. Other times they will use V and minus v in the same derivation. Again, that's going to get us the bidirectional movement. Um, and at other times, it's really hard to see. But if you know what you're looking for, you can find where v and minus v are used. So let's look at what Einstein does and what Lorenz does. We can see in Einstein's statement, when he does his partial differential equation, we can see where he does v and minus v. In fact, you'll notice those as the equations for the short and the long line, respectively. Um, now, for Lorenz, it's a little harder to see, and it happens when he creates his beta squared term. But if you understand that beta squared term, you'll see that it's essentially the same thing that Einstein has done. You have the length of a long line and the length of a of short line, and you're simply dividing by two. That should look very familiar to what Einstein has done on the left-hand side of his equation. Um, although he does it with functions, Lorenz does it algebraically, they will produce the, the same result. So one of the questions that we have to answer is what is halfway? So you'll recall that when we looked at the moving systems, we're talking about the length of time that it takes for the person to perform the oscillation or the distance that the person has to now walk to 
outperform that oscillation. But the question isn't the total. That's not what we're interested in here today. Instead, we're interested in understanding how long does it take to go half of that total round trip distance. And for that, you can either, and we'll look at it for the X axis, because for the Y axis, it's relatively easy. You can just take one of the lines because they both produce the same equation and just use that, or you can sum them and divide by two. For the x-axis, it gets a little bit more interesting. So there is an obvious way, and the obvious way is you take the long line and you take the short line and you add both numbers together and you divide by two. That will tell you what the halfway time is, and if you multiplied it by the, the velocity of the person, that will tell you the, the total uh, distance. But there is another way, and that is you could subtract the short line from the long line. And then you can divide the remaining parts by 2. And then you either subtract it from the long line or add it to the short line. And what you have if you do that is an equation that will tell you how far is halfway along the x-axis. So it's not completely obvious. But it is intuitive. Now, there is something I'd like to point out here, and I think it's very important. A couple of things. Let me just build the slide. Number one, it gives meaning to the equation v times x prime over c squared minus v squared. Now, you see this in Einstein's time function. And every time I've asked people in the special relic relativity community what that function means, can they explain it to me? Their answer was, this is the adjustment to time. Well, that's a true statement, um, but what does it mean? And no one has been able to explain it beyond that. We now give specific meaning to that equation. It's very clear and we've, able, we've been able to illustrate it graphically. The other thing that this does is once you, you go through Einstein's derivation, which we will walk through uh, either in this podcast or in a subsequent podcast, we can see that his psi equation simply answers the question, how far is halfway? So we end up with three equations that are really length equations. It tells us how far do we now have to go in the x direction, in the y direction, in the z direction. Once you view them as three lengths, the equations make sense. And, and, and as long as we stay grounded in lengths. So let's take a look at what that is. Here are the three equations. Each one of these equations answers as a result of, of moving in an incomplete coordinate system, how far do you now have to go to go halfway? That's what these equations mean. Now, there is confusion if you try to interpret these as an x, y, and z point as a coordinate, then it starts to get a little muddled. But as long as you view them as three lengths, then everything makes perfect sense. So let's look at how some of the models use these equations. Michelson and Morley use these equations unchanged. They use x instead of x prime, but essentially they use these equations. Lorenz multiplies these equations by the square root of 1 minus v squared over c squared, at, which is a step that I call normalization. And he uses uh, x instead of x prime. Einstein also does that normalization step, and he replaces x prime with x minus vt. Now, one thing about Lorenz and Einstein, they both perform the normalization step without mathematically explaining themselves. So in Lorenz's case, 
he uses he, he comes up with an equation for beta squared and then drops one of the squares just uses beta and Einstein uh, just simply introduces his final equations without even mentioning the fact that he's doing anything uh, regarding normalization it just magically appears in his final step in my case I don't do that normalization step um, and I keep X prime what I do however is I use W instead of C because I allow that to be more variable depending on the phenomena that we're uh, uh, observing and the medium that it's traveling through so there is a distinction between all these models and that's going to come into play as to what is X prime is it a full wavelength or a half wavelength and as I've put forth in my model it's a half wavelength and that will be one of the key distinct uh, distinctions between the previous models which are based on full wavelengths and on my model which is based on half wavelength and again we'll see this in play in part two once we talk once we do the second part of the presentation so this brings us to a summary of some of our key findings basically we've been able to give meaning to a few specific mathematical terms we've been able to explain v times x prime over c squared minus v squared. Again, to date, my, my understanding is that the best we've been able to do is to say that this is the adjustment to time, and we haven't been able to really uh, graphically depict this. Uh, however, if that's not the case, I'd certainly be interested in, in hearing other interpretations of that equation. Um, it gives meaning to each of the uh, axes transformation. So it specifically, it gives meaning to Einstein's Xi equation. So we now know that this is the equation for a particular um, length. And it establishes the foundational equations and answer, that answers the question, what is one half the total? So we've now given mathematical meaning to all of the key equations. Also, what we've done is we've also offered some revised foundational assumptions. Uh, again, we now understand the difference between lengths and points. And I've done a previous podcast on lengths and points. I don't remember the number, but um, if you'd like to, to find that and revisit that, please do so at your leisure. The second thing is now we've talked about bidirectional assumption in the derivation. And of course, one of the key distinctions is two types of coordinate systems. So with that, that wraps up our conversation on bidirectional wavelength. As always, I look forward to hearing your thoughts and feedback and suggestions. This episode of uh, the RelativityChallenge.com podcast is copyright Stephen Bryant and RelativityChallenge.com 2008. I hope that you'll join, you'll join me again next time. Until then, be well.